From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. There's a few ground squirrels running around. There was one ptarmigan we saw, but I wasn't quick enough to even be able to think about eating it. This time, we'll hear about a woman and her husband who traveled a long way, only to face one final challenge. Caroline Van Hemert is a biologist. She was nearly finished with her PhD when she realized her work was keeping her inside, away from the nature that had inspired her in the first place. My husband Pat and I have always been drawn to wild places, or at least have been for a long time. Some of our real formative experiences together came about from being in the backcountry and doing things that challenged us physically and then also kind of allowed us to see what's possible. Caroline and Pat had gone on month-long skiing or climbing adventures. Once, they built their own barkskin canoe from scratch in the wilderness and took it down a remote river in Canada. Now it was time for an even more ambitious trip. It would be 4,000 miles from Bellingham, Washington to Northwest Alaska. They would travel entirely under their own power, canoeing, rafting, skiing, and walking. They wouldn't use any existing trails or roads, mostly because the places they were going were so remote, there weren't any trails or roads. Instead, Caroline and Pat would follow the migration of caribou. Caribou travel incredible distances every year. Between their calving grounds, usually up on the Arctic coast, and then in their wintering grounds, which tend to be more in the forested part of this region where they have some protection from the winds and the the really intense storms. You know, as we're making our way kind of on our own migration, we were so dependent on the caribou and came to trust their decisions above what our human logic or intuition would tell us. We ran into this again and again as we were following these tracks. And sometimes they were really obvious that tracks would all get funneled down into a single really well-defined path. And other times they would fan out and become really faint. And we learned to follow them as much by feel as we did by visual clues. So they were so worn over thousands of years into the ground that we could sense with our feet when we were on the trail and and when we were off the trail. Of course, there were times where the trails went places and we thought, oh, not another river crossing. Like, we don't want to get cold and wet. There must be a different way. Let's just try. It doesn't look that bad up ahead. And so we would choose not to follow the caribou into where they obviously crossed the river and then continue up and look for another option. And either we'd hit some kind of steep, impassable scree slope, or more often we would realize that we in fact did need to cross the river, but where we had found ourselves was instead of being gradual gravel bar that would take us into a relatively wide portion of the river, we'd be peering down a steep 100-foot cliff and we're looking down on a torrent of, of water below us. So even though they never saw the caribou, Caroline and Pat grew to trust them to show the path. Our story begins 3,000 miles into their 4,000-mile trip as Caroline and Pat arrived at Alaska's Brooks Mountain Range. One of the most remote, intact 
wilderness areas in all of North America and there's these passes and valleys that go on for miles as far as you can see you look out and it's nothing but tundra and steep mountain passes and this remarkable landscape and we needed the caribou to get from one side of it to the other and without them I'm not sure that it would have been possible. In the Brooks Range, Caroline and Pat were on their own. They were north of the Arctic Circle, far from any towns or people. And it rained persistently, which made crossing rivers difficult. But eventually, they made it through most of the range. We had this final pass to cross, and in many ways, it didn't seem like anything that remarkable on the map. We knew that there was some steep slopes we'd have to go up and over, but by that point, we had crossed dozens and maybe hundreds of mountain passes, and so it was just one more pass. The problem was that all of that rain that had been falling down low for the preceding couple of weeks translated into snow up high, and so we were coming up this pass and knew we had to get up and over, and it was the last pass that would take us into the Noatak Valley, which was important because that was essentially our out. So as we're looking at this mountain and realizing just how much snow is up there, and meanwhile it continues to rain and continues to snow up high, it's not looking like it's going to work, but we had to give it a try. And so we went up one route, the one that we had intended to take that looked doable on the map, and tried once, couldn't get up. We were really concerned about avalanche conditions. And so we get up, we realize that we can't do it safely. We go down to a camp, wait for a while, hope that things are going to stabilize. and said, there's more snow. We try one more time, that doesn't work. We go and we try to get up and over this other steep, rocky face. That also was a no-go. At this point, we're not really willing to consider the possibility of giving up because it feels like in the context of this larger trip, we are so close and have so much at stake. So getting out of some of these remote areas, it's not such a simple task. You don't just call the pilot and say, hey, I'm done, come and get me. We knew that somehow or another we had to get ourselves out of there. We didn't actually even have maps that covered the entire area of an alternative route, but we thought we could sketch it out on a very large 1 to 250,000 scale map, something that might work. But that meant cutting our food rations in half and really reducing what we were eating every day so that we could hopefully make it around. We're getting progressively hungrier and it's continuing to rain, but slowly we start to pick our way around this alternative route. And in many ways that seemed like it was working and we were getting where we needed to go. Still wet, still cold, but at least there wasn't snow. But this new route was unknown. It had a pass they'd never heard of anyone crossing. So we arrive at this final pass that is really at this point a make it or break it and we've got to get over. There's just no other option. And it's pretty late in the day by the time we arrive and we're low on food, (laughs) as we had been for a number of days. In this part of the world, some of the angles of repose of these boulders are just remarkable. They sit on these slopes and you look up at them and think, how is this enormous truck-sized block sitting there in that way? 
and this slope was definitely one of those where there's all you know, these jumbled boulders and rocks and bits of scree and we had to make our way somehow up them so it was kind of this mix of being as ginger and careful as we could but then having to at some points really trust our handholds and given it all we had to yank ourselves up and over. So we get finally, you know, slowly make it to the top of this pass and for a minute we are just elated. We have kind of done what we thought we needed to do and now we just need to go down the other side. Well the problem with the other side is that it was the north facing side and it was covered in snow and ice. And similarly, you know, there's these huge boulders, big car-sized blocks and refrigerator-sized blocks. I guess the mixed blessing of having very little food is that our packs were a lot lighter than they had been. So at least we had that going for us. We start making our way down and every step kind of had consequences and we, we knew it. We would step and then try to assess whether that foothold was gonna be decent enough to prevent us from sliding and getting a leg wedged in one of these big crevices between the boulders. By this time it's pretty late at night and still very long daylight hours. We're way up above the Arctic Circle, but it was starting to get dark. So at least I was done. I just couldn't continue going safely. And the first place we got to that was flat enough to pitch a tent, we decided we're going to call it for the day. It had probably been a you know, 16, 17 hour day and we'll deal with this tomorrow. And so we pitch our tent and then sure enough, an hour or two later, you hear that sound, the snow starts to fall. And when we woke up in the morning, the whole landscape is covered in snow and ice. Caroline and Pat woke up on the side of a mountain above the Arctic Circle to a world newly covered in snow. Caroline's shoes were frozen solid. Trying to wiggle our shoes on and wearing every last bit of clothing that we had and start to come down into this valley that had attained in our minds mythic proportions because it was the valley we needed to get to to complete this trip that we had been throwing our hearts and souls and all of our energy at. Reaching the valley meant the hard part was over. All Caroline and Pat had to do was spend several days canoeing down the Noatak River to their destination. They had arranged for a plane to meet them in the valley with a food resupply and a foldable canoe. And so we kind of thought we'd made it. Sun started to shine. The valley was just the most beautiful palette of reds and yellows and early fall colors in the tundra. And down below is this crystal clear river, the Noatak River. And so we start to make our way down think, okay, we'll call the pilot. This is the one place on our whole trip where we had air support for a resupply. And they're ready for us. They say, yes, somebody will be there this afternoon. Our prearranged meeting place still sounds good. Everything looks like a go. And so we make our way to this slough, this little body of water just off the main river. After living on half rations for so long because of their reroute, Caroline and Pat were really hungry. And the plane was coming with their food resupply. When we get there, we celebrate. We decide that we're going to eat our last full meal because the plane's coming and we're really hungry. And we've done this thing that we worked so hard at. So we're there pretty satiated for the first time in, in a while with bellies full of pasta 
and noticing that the shadows are getting longer on on the peaks and it's starting to get a little bit chillier and I look at my watch and it's you know, five o'clock or six o'clock and thinking huh this is kind of late but you know in Alaska pilots fly all hours of the day and night so I'm not going to worry too much but another half an hour 40 minutes pass and I call and they say oh yeah well the pilots got backed up because other people needed to get flown out they'd been waiting with the same weather you had for the last couple of weeks and they're done for the day but they'll be there first thing in the morning and of course my first reaction is like this is not what I wanted to hear this is really bad but looks clear it's gonna be good weather tomorrow I have to believe that and we'll see him in the morning and then overnight the rain comes again clouds start dropping farther and farther down the mountainsides and pretty soon it's the middle of the next day and there's no chance that anyone's flying anywhere. In fact, it rained so hard that our tent was completely flooded. We had to pack everything up and move to another site. We're at the point with not having any food that we're hungry and we know that it could get serious in a hurry especially because we had been stretched so thin leading up to that point. We were eating half rations and then sometimes even less and covering a lot more miles than we originally intended. And so we were, we were already pretty weak and had a, a handful of granola bars and a couple of tablespoons of olive oil and I think two packets of instant ramen, maybe three, that were left. There's no fish to catch. The river's running so high that fishing is basically impossible and we're camped next to the slough that doesn't have any fish in it anyway and there's a few ground squirrels running around there was one ptarmigan we saw but I wasn't quick enough to even be able to think about eating it we'd share a granola bar and share a tablespoon of olive oil I think the first day and it kept raining through the next night and then same thing the following day We're calling on the satellite phone, which is one of those funny devices that can make you feel so connected and yet so very far from people comfortable in a lodge somewhere. My parents were at home in Anchorage and knowing that we were having this problem and there was nothing they could really do. And certainly by the end of the third day, even by the end of the second day, we were really feeling effects physiologically. It was hard to stand up without almost falling over from being dizzy. When we would try to sleep at night, our pulses were incredibly rapid. And you know we could tell that our bodies were doing their best to cope with lack of anything to eat, but they weren't doing that great of a job. And we had run out of any other options. Getting to another community was 100 miles or more. And we certainly didn't have the physical reserves to be able to do that. We were essentially starving, and this wasn't really a problem that we had anticipated, I guess, in thinking about all the potential hazards of a trip like this. We did our best to collect what few berries there were around. We were already late enough in the season that it was basically just withered up crowberries, these mealy little blackberries, and no blueberries left, maybe a few cranberries, but essentially not nearly enough to get ahead from the efforts we 
had to put into foraging and getting wet and cold and being outside. We were spending a lot of time on our backs, lying in the tent and, and waiting, trying really hard not to think about the, the what ifs and trying to convince each other that somehow the plane would come. But then again, you know, minds have a way of going to those worst case scenario places. And, and so we had to recognize that that was a possibility. And there was nothing the pilots could do. There's nothing, no way for them to get to us. It was, it was incredibly stormy. There's no way they could fly from the other side of the mountain range and help us. So we were just there waiting, wondering what was going to happen. And then it was finally the evening of the fourth day that the first signs of maybe the weather clearing a little bit came up and bracing against false hope, I think, was probably one of the biggest mental challenges for me that I just knew if I got my hopes up and it didn't work out that that's almost a worse place than not hoping at all. And so I was trying really hard not to let myself go there yet because we didn't have any assurance that the pilot was going to be able to come. But then when we were finally talking to the pilot, it finally looked good enough on our side of the mountain range anyway. They were coming from the south side and we were on the north side and we said, the weather's good, it's very flyable, like please, please come. We're desperate. We haven't eaten in you know, going on five days and we hadn't eaten much before that. This is really serious. It's not just we want some snacks, like we need to eat. And the pilot I spoke to said, okay, I'm coming, I'll be there. And this was the next morning, the morning of the fifth day. And then we waited and we waited and it's still pretty good weather, but a few little clouds are wispy around the mountains and we're watching these thinking, please, you've got to come. Like, how can you not be here? It's, everything's perfect. And I don't know what the delay was, but Finally, finally, we hear this low drone of a plane in the distance, and so we think, okay, this is it. The plane's here. And then that drone became quieter and disappeared. But thankfully, a few hours later, we heard a sound and the sound got closer and closer and the plane was able to land on the slough next to us. We could barely stand up enough to go and, and help the pilot unload the boxes and the food and the, the canoe that we needed to get out. And I don't think the pilot really understood. I mean, he knew we were hungry. He knew we needed help, but it just didn't register how close to the edge we were. And we took all of those boxes and you know, sat there and just started eating. And of course, our stomachs weren't so keen on the idea of filling them full of food right off the bat like that. But slowly, we started to feel, get our energy back and realize that this wasn't going to be <laughs> the last place that we pitched our tent. That night, there was a big moon. There were wolves howling and snow geese. This was in the kind of peak of the fall migration as birds are heading south and we hear snow geese flying over and it just felt like, okay, here we are. <laughs> this is our reward. 
The next day, Caroline and Pat assembled the foldable canoe that had come in the supply drop. They hopped in the rain-swollen river and got on their way. We were covering huge distances, 70 miles a day, just kind of paddling, making our way along, and had a strong head when that didn't matter. It was just so much volume of water. And it was a couple of days after we left, cold and just kind of ready to get through this and feeling like you know, the end was coming. And we notice that there's this branch that's kind of floating across the river. And at first glance, it didn't look like much. And then realized, oh, wait, that's not a branch. That's a caribou antler. Caroline and Pat had been following the caribou trail for their whole trip. And now they finally got to see their guides. We look, and it turns out there's a bunch of other caribou standing on the bank of the river, and some that were crossing, some were already on the far side. And so we think, oh, let's pull over and see if we can watch them. And so we do. We find a little eddy, bring our canoe to shore, and get out and realize that there are actually a lot of animals, dozens and hundreds. So we think, let's find a spot to sit down and watch, and maybe more will come. And so we hike up into the bushes a little bit and hunker down and hear the sound coming from behind us. You know, at first it was one of those things that's like, am I hearing something? What, what is that? Oh, oh yeah, I'm definitely hearing something. And then turns into this just mass of sound and movement and you could almost feel it on our skin. We sit down and waves of caribou start passing us. First dozens, hundreds, and we sit there and over the course of several hours, there were thousands of caribou. And they were passing, in many cases, just within a couple of feet of us. Pat had got down so quickly, he just had his legs outstretched on the ground. And there was at least one big bull that stepped right over his legs. And there was this little calf that came and sniffed us face to face, just a couple of inches away. And we sat there and it was, for me at least, and I think for Pat too, the most powerful encounter with wildlife I've ever had. It was just this mass of energy and intention and to watch the caribou as they're making decisions crossing this river was just amazing. The cows and their calves would travel really closely together because at this stage in their lives, if a caribou calf loses its mom, it's done for. And so there's this kind of element of desperation that they just had to move. Those little ones, as they're swimming the river, they never had a, had a break. So the adults, their legs were long enough that halfway across, they could touch down and shake the water off and kind of rest before they had to cross this swifter, even larger channel. And the little ones didn't have that opportunity to rest and so they were just given it everything they had and sometimes would start to drift downriver. This one calf in particular we watched and it kind of missed this little eddy it needed and it, it started drifting away and so we're watching and thinking this caribou calf is done for and it's being swept far downstream. And then somehow miraculously on the other side it pedals up on this muddy, steep, steep bank, somehow finds traction, I don't know how it did it. And then it was almost on its side and all of a sudden it just sprung probably every <laughs> muscle fiber it had in its body because it was, it was either gonna survive or it wasn't at that point. And 
somehow launched itself up and onto the edge of this brushy bank and was able to return to its mother. And you know, we're sitting there watching all of this with our bare eyes and then with binoculars and cheering for this little caribou calf. And there it goes. We watched these animals all through the evening for hours and then pitched a tent kind of out of the way of where they would be moving, but also in a place where we could continue to watch them. And we were actually on this little island in the river and we could hear them, even after it had become dark, we could hear them swimming the river and splashing and they make these really distinctive sounds. They kind of huff and grunt as they're swimming and walking. Their tendons actually have this really audible click as they're walking. And so we could hear them as they're crossing the river for just hours and hours until we were so tired, we finally dozed off and, and then they, they weren't there anymore. Part of this felt like, in many ways, this grand reward for you know, all of our efforts. And it was only, I guess, the next morning that I realized how absolutely critical our timing was and how in some kind of cosmic way, there was a reason why we'd had such delays with our route and then with the plane coming. And it was because we needed to be there to see that, to witness the migration. Because in the morning, there was no sign of any caribou. All we could find was this caribou hair kind of swirling around in the eddy and lots of scat, of course, and tracks, all these little tiny caribou calf tracks that were pressed into the sand. Our storyteller was Caroline Van Hemmert. She wrote a book about this adventure called The Sun is a Compass. There are all kinds of beautiful details about migrations, life choices, and exciting scrapes Caroline and Pat got into in other parts of the trip. You can see photos from their trip at our website, humannaturepodcast.org, where you can also support the show and get one of our new t-shirts. I'm Erin Jones. This episode was produced by me with line production from Micah Schweitzer. Editing help came from Megan Fury, Anna Rader, Greg Ronco, and Nell Smith. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.